Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. One morning in the early 1960s, a man made a horrifying discovery. He stumbled across the concealed body of a two-year-old boy. For more than 50 years, the investigation wouldn't get much further than that. By 2020, the case was the oldest instance of unidentified remains in the state of Oregon. This case did not exist in a computer database. There are different stories about what might have happened, but it's mostly speculation. I knew DNA had been done on the case uh, in the past. I'm Regan Mertz. And I'm Dave Killen. This is The Unidentifieds, a podcast from The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Last time, we explored the case of a teenage girl whose remains were found along a southern Oregon highway in 1971. For this case, we return to Southern Oregon for another case that's even further in the distant past. It was July 11, 1963, four months before President John F. Kennedy would be assassinated. Zip codes had just been introduced in the United States, Beatlemania was in full swing, and a fisherman found a tiny body in a Southern Oregon reservoir. The boy's remains were on a ledge, about 15 feet down the bank from a high water level mark. This meant that the body had previously been submerged. It was wrapped in an aqua-colored blanket and a handmade patchwork quilt with multicolored gingham squares. The bundle was tied with wire and held down by iron weights. He wore a red and white striped shirt with a JCPenney label, gray corduroy pants with an elastic waist, a white cloth diaper with blue diaper pins, white ankle socks, and size 3 laced white shoes that were thought to be bought at Noble Shoes in downtown Medford, Oregon. The boy was 32 and a half inches tall, 19 to 30 pounds, and had eight upper and eight lower teeth. The Jackson County Sheriff's Office ended up taking over the investigation. It was given case number 63-2301. The county's medical examiner believed the boy died around October 1962, but it was hard to determine a more exact time frame because the reservoir's water depth and temperature varied by season, and the little boy's body was insulated inside the blankets. A month after the body was found, what few clues investigators had had failed to pan out, and the tips they'd gotten had led nowhere. The case was eventually forgotten, tossed into the archives for the next 44 years. Hello. Hey, there you are. My phone says I have reception, so, um, are you still there? <laughs> yes, I can hear you. Okay. It's extremely foggy. Um, like I drove into a cloud, basically. Like I know the reservoir is right next to me on, on the, to the left of where I'm driving on this road now, but I, I can't even see it. When Reagan called, I was approaching Keene Creek Reservoir. It's about 18 miles east of Ashland, which itself isn't far north of the California border. It's a remote location, and we had some trouble with phone reception at first. All right. Still there? Yes. Okay. 
How large is the reservoir? I've seen like my grandma lives right across from one and that's a pretty large body of water. So how big would you say this one is? This one's pretty small, <clears throat> I, I think, as far as the reservoirs go. And it, it's kind of long and narrow. I would guess it's a quarter of a mile long. And then, you know, just maybe a couple hundred feet wide. Yeah, one of the things about this case was that the water levels fluctuate a lot. And that's kind of how they estimated, like, how long he had been there because of the, there's like water level marks on the reservoir. I don't see the marks, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're at the other end. But you can tell that it, that it's low right now. I'm looking out and because of the fog, I can only see a few hundred feet, but I can tell by looking at the banks that it's, that it's lower than it um, could be. It kind of just makes me think about comparing you to this fisherman in 1960, like walking through this area and coming across something that doesn't look like it should be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what are your thoughts right now just as you're walking through this area? Yeah, I mean, I'm keeping my eye out for anything that doesn't look like it should be here. So far, I've, I've just seen, you know, the occasional broken bottle or wrapper of something. But yeah, actually, maybe you know. So when he found the sort of bundle with the body in it, was it still in the water or was it on the bank? It was partially in the water, so like what investigators think happened is that it was initially submerged underwater completely, and then the water levels yeah. lowered, and then that's how it emerged. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I worked missing persons cases, and I also worked medical examiner investigations, I began to see this pattern where if someone went missing in a jurisdiction that had poor reporting or, or just didn't have the same kinds of standards that we had, there could be someone's skeletal remains in a box sitting on a shelf somewhere, never making it into the system to get identified. That's Colin Fagan, a retired detective sergeant at the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. In 2007, he found 11 boxes that were categorized as old sheriff cases. Colin asked a special investigator to sort through the files. As the investigator poured over documents, he rediscovered cold case 63-2301. This case did not exist in a computer database. These were printed reports in a file folder in a basement at the county archive. And um, had we not found them, we'd have known nothing, known nothing about the case. Digging through the files, Colin learned a lot about the case. In the decades leading up to the 1960s, color photography had become more widely used and color motion pictures had taken over the big screen. The sheriff's office had just started using color film at the time of the case, so there were vivid images of the quilt and the body. The boy's remains were almost fully intact, but there wasn't much more. Despite their best efforts and a lot of amazing work went into their uh, investigation, uh, it was just before President Kennedy was assassinated, and it's kind of interesting how there was a lot of investigative energy that went into this case, President Kennedy was assassinated and the case stopped. Um, the boy was buried in an unmarked grave site at the Hillcrest Cemetery in Medford. His identity not known, his relatives unidentified, and the case just sat there. So from about 1964 to 2008, this case just wasn't on anybody's radar. In 2008, Colin's team got a court order to exhume the little boy's remains. With the assistance of a forensic pathologist, uh, Gene McLaughlin, Dr. Gene McLaughlin out of Eugene, we were able to examine the remains um, 
she had to deflush the bones and, and remove the tissue in order to get skeletal remains. We were able to determine that this boy had Down's syndrome characteristics, that he was about two years old, and there was no apparent cause for his death. Uh, there wasn't any obvious uh, reason for his death, but identity still became a concern. Dr. Jean McLaughlin is a human osteologist and forensic anthropologist at the University of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History. In 2008, she was working on her dissertation, which explored the missing and unidentified persons' databases and how Oregon uses them. And so I had been doing work um, with Jackson County, well, with many counties in Oregon, exploring what are their missing persons policies, how could they be changed and adapted, what systems were they using. And so I had a relationship with the sheriff's office down there, and I had worked um, some cases with their medical examiner in the past. And so when they started kind of looking at their cold cases, um, I got involved in this case. They asked me to come down and um, do an examination of the remains and help them um, process the remains in order for um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to do a facial reproduction um, to try and just get more information out about the case. Since the little boy's remains had already been examined in 1963, investigators already knew what his sex and age were. So Jean's exam focused on the skeleton to see if there was any trauma, pathologies, or individual identifiers that could help investigators with their case. We also do what we call a taphonomic evaluation. So what has happened to the remains since the person died? So what does the decomposition process look like? Um, and then we look for individual identifiers that might help us find who this person is or confirm who this person is. Investigators also took a DNA sample from his remains, but this lead ran cold when the FBI's National DNA Database came back with no matches. So the little boy's remains were buried again in 2008. This time, a tombstone was laid on top of the grave. It's black with white letters and reads, Unknown Baby Boy. 1961 to 1963. All right, here we are at the Hillcrest Memorial Cemetery. It's very dark and foggy. Ground is wet. It's not raining right now, but it's raining today. The only one here. The Hillcrest Memorial Cemetery is on the south side of Medford, Oregon, which itself is about 13 miles north of Ashland. The cemetery is about a 27-mile drive from Keene Creek Reservoir. Dave got there just after sunset. It's, it's pretty dark here in the cemetery. I had a general idea of where the baby boy's grave was, but it was still difficult to find it in the dark. Regan wondered if the dates on the headstones could offer a clue to its location. Looking at the numbers and seeing only slight differences between years of birth and death, I suddenly realized I'd stumbled across what seemed to be a special part of the cemetery. And you know, I wonder if this is an area for children because first of all, there's more decorations here than other areas that I've walked through, but these also appear to have things that you might, you know, adorn a child's grave with. There's stuffed rabbit, uh, little angel figurines. There's a little toy car on this one. Whether or not that area is exclusively dedicated to children, 
it did turn out to include the baby boy's grave. I have now found his grave. The way I found the headstone was that there are these two little sort of cartoon frogs, and then there's a Nerf football, and a couple action figures. One I'm not sure who it is, and one is the dad from The Incredibles. This headstone itself, which is very small and between two bigger headstones, one of which is, oh, also a baby, um, John Lee Jackson, 1962. Uh, that's to the left. To the right is another baby, Rodney Lee Holden, uh, who only lived for two days. So I do think that this is an area of the cemetery for children. Going through the case file and looking at, like, he was still wearing a diaper and he had diaper pins and he had, like, these tiny shoes on and these little frilled socks and, um, you know, his clothes were from JCPenney and it was just like, he was such a little boy. Yeah. So regardless of what happened, yeah, it's heartbreaking to think about. Two years after the exhumation, in 2010, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children created a composite image from the extracted DNA. The image shows a little boy with thin, straight hair and dark eyes since investigators didn't know his eye color. A couple of baby teeth poked through his smile, but it didn't generate any leads. Colin left his job at the Jackson County Sheriff's Office in 2015 and retired a few years later. But also in 2015, a new medical examiner, Christian Adams, joined the case. Not long after that, the Jackson County Sheriff's Office received a Facebook message, unrelated to any individual case, urging investigators to turn to genetic genealogy. What really kind of spurred new action was a, um, a Facebook inquiry from a seemingly unrelated party to anything, uh, just asking if we had ever considered genetic genealogy. Uh, with regard to the case, um, it's kind of a newer field that I've had some exposure to, but had never really, um, never really utilized or had the opportunity to utilize. I knew DNA had been done on the case uh, in the past, and um, I contacted Dr. Nikki Vance with the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office to see what the feasibility um, and process would be like for um, something of this nature being utilized on the case. There was uh, viable DNA uh, available, um, as well as, as some grant funding that allowed us to utilize uh, Parabon Labs to conduct that research. and yielded very positive results for us. Parabon Nanolabs is a DNA technology company with an office in Washington, D.C.'s Virginia suburbs. It provides advanced DNA analysis that includes genetic genealogy as well as DNA phenotyping, which can predict a person's physical appearance based on their DNA, and kinship inference, which can find familial connections out to six degrees of relatedness. Christian partnered with Oregon State's forensic anthropologist, Dr. Nikki Vance, to submit a biological sample to Parabon in hopes of creating leads through DNA phenotyping and genetic genealogy. And in 2021, retired Detective Sergeant Colin Fagan got a phone call. I received a call from the Jackson County Sheriff's Office telling me that DNA from that case, the King Creek Boy case as we called it, um, had been examined by um, private entity. They had used familial DNA to compare against a sample that came from our little boy's femur and were able to identify a family member. It would be from a database like 23andMe or something like that. 
um, one of those ancestry, submit your DNA, find out uh, your roots kind of thing. Parabon Nanolab's chief genetic genealogist, C.C. Moore, started her search using an open-source DNA database called GEDmatch. C.C. started working on this case in December 2020. Just one month later, GEDmatch changed their terms of service and now allowed unidentified remains cases to be compared against the entire GEDmatch database. Before that, such cases were lumped in with criminal investigations and only able to use DNA results that people had specifically opted into for use by law enforcement. So when I started working this case, the matches were not particularly strong, and I spent a lot of time narrowing it down to one particular family. And then after GEDmatch changed their terms of service, I got some extremely strong matches. So if I had started working it in February, it probably would have been a case that didn't take me a lot of work because of the strength of the matches that were in the database. But I didn't see those matches for at least a month after I started working it. So the closer matches did confirm my theory about which family this was. Uh, I just wish I had had them sooner. Cece located two possible siblings of the unidentified boy. One of the siblings was a DNA-confirmed maternal half-brother in Ohio. He told Moore that he had a younger sibling with Down syndrome that was born in New Mexico and went missing. There were no public records that I could find that would actually identify him. So I knew that he was the son of one of three sisters, but I didn't know which of the sisters. And so getting the family's input was incredibly important because they were able to relate family stories to me and, you know, family history. In this particular family, there were some very interesting newspaper articles because of some things that had happened in the family uh, a generation further back. And that was informative to me because it definitely showed that this family had had some trauma, some early trauma, and that that could potentially affect Uh, family dynamics in the future. Uh, We still don't know, was he murdered or was he, uh, did he die? And they just didn't have the money to bury him. So they, you know, unfortunately disposed of his body in this way. But we know that someone's not in a great position if they make that type of choice. In cases involving adults, an examination of the paper trail we all leave as we go through life is an important next step after genetic genealogy gets CC in the ballpark. But because the boy had died so young, such records didn't exist. He hadn't had time to make them. But through the boy's half-brother, CC made contact with another family member who proved to be a crucial part of bridging this information gap. The family was not based in the Pacific Northwest at all. And that was one of the confusing things about the case is I couldn't find any family members who had ever lived in that area. So it seemed odd that they would have just, uh, you know, been passing through and put their son in the reservoir. So uh, the information from the family is what told me that the mother had lived up there for a short period of time. And the family member that I spoke spoke to was reaching out to other family members. And so when she told me that his mother had lived up there, that really made sense. She had heard some rumors that there had been a child 
that had been either sent to an institution or something had happened, but she didn't know his name yet. When you spoke to these family members, what were their reactions? I mean, this was going on 60 years. Well, I will say that the family contact that I was communicating with was an incredibly loving, compassionate person. Uh, she's actually the wife of the first cousin. She's known the family, you know, forever, though. So she's very much connected to them and knew a lot of the family history. And she's just a wonderful person. I mean, it's really heartwarming to do this work and to find people who care so much, even after all these years have passed. And it's really thanks to her efforts, largely, that we were able to get to this point. And so if it wasn't for this particular family member really going above and beyond, uh, I don't think that we would have been able to give him his name back. You know, like Colin Fagan specifically, like, would go to this, like, where you are right now. He would go there for, you know, the past couple years, not even years, decades. Like, he's been working on the case that long. And, you know, there's people who do care about this little boy that might not have known him personally, but knows him through this story, through their investigations. Um, but also, it's an honor to be able to tell this story. Yeah, it's basically providing a service of, uh, of restoring dignity and um, existence, really. There's, there's a big difference between, you know, having a name and not having a name, especially someone so young, because he didn't have a life. We can't say like, oh, he, you know, he went to this high school or he was, you know, he was really good at whatever he chose to do as a career. You know, he didn't have any of that because he was a baby. So really all there is is a name. That's what you're giving back to someone, I think, in cases like this. Yeah. In 2021, after 58 years of mystery, decades of detective work, and countless hours of genealogical sleuthing, the unknown baby boy's New Mexico birth certificate was unearthed. It shows that the little boy was born on October 2, 1960, and his name is Stephen Alexander Crawford. Investigators began affectionately calling him Little Stevie. When families are, are willing to assist with this and are compassionate, it is it makes all the difference. And it's, it's really heartwarming for me because, as you can imagine, working a case like this is very sad. Mm -hmm. And... To find a family like Stevie's extended family is, is a wonderful thing. You know, they love him. They care about him. I learned that he was loved and cared for during his life. And so that really made me feel better about the circumstances surrounding this case. There's a lot of speculation on the Internet about what happened to Stevie. But CC wants people to be not so quick to judge. And let me also say that on the internet, a lot of people are assuming the mother murdered Stevie. We don't know that. We have no evidence to support that. There are different stories about what might have happened, but it's mostly speculation. So we don't know if she was responsible for his death or if his stepfather was responsible for his death or if he just passed away and they didn't have the money 
to dispose of the remains as they should have. You know, they didn't uh, have the money to bury him. He had a lot of disabilities, so it's really unclear what his life expectancy would have been and if this was a natural cause or whether it was murder. So I just caution people to refrain from jumping to conclusions about who's responsible for this and what the circumstances of his death were. As for Detective Colin Fagan, in a remarkable coincidence, it turns out that he and little Stevie were born in the same month, October of 1960. A a detective that uh, I worked with at the Sheriff's Department uh, called me and said, Sarge, you need to know uh, before this becomes public that the King Creek boy has been tentatively identified. That's what I'd learned initially. And then explained to me how that had come about and that there was uh, there was a wait to get a confirmation um, with certainty. And that once the confirmation with certainty was made, then we, of course, knew there was no question that Stevie Crawford was our little King Creek boy. He also shared with me a copy of the birth certificate from New Mexico. And the date of that uh, birth was October 2nd, 1960. And, you know, this is a case I'd carried with me through my career. And I was born in October 1960. So it's just another interesting thread through this case. Just another connection with you and Stevie. Yes. It's almost impossible that we'll ever know exactly what happened to Stevie. So his case is officially closed. Next time on The Unidentifieds, we take a look at how genetic genealogy works and what makes it such a powerful tool for investigators. Plus, I take a DNA test of my own and find out what's involved. We dive into the process, the ethics behind it, and the experience of finding out more about your ancestors. The Unidentifieds is a production of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Regan Mertz reported remotely from Missouri. The podcast was edited by me, Dave Killen, alongside Andrew Thien, Teresa Mahoney, and Carly Imus. Thanks to McKenna Bach for the theme music. You can find more Oregonian podcasts at OregonLive.com slash podcasts. If you liked this project, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.